Because to me, that then is when it becomes dogmatic, you know? That's when okay, it, is, it is... Yeah, go ahead. But it's epistemic supremacy. That's what we mean by yeah. dogmatic, right? It's saying here yeah. is the only way to know things. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I am Troy Polidori. And um, as we've said over the last couple episodes, we're back. We've got a new producer. We can say now officially it's Maddie. If you listen to Wisecrack at all and you listen to the Culture Binge podcast or Show Me the Meaning, she actually has her hand in producing those. So let's say a big warm welcome to Maddie. Welcome, welcome aboard, Maddie. Um, so in line with that, um, if you are out there and you are able to give us any support or if you want access to any of the bits of bonus content, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, we're trying to figure out how we can ramp things up in this year. And one of the big things will be getting Maddie so that we can pay her and then, um, we can be more consistent with episodes and we can be more consistent with bonus content and discord stuff. And so, um, the more stuff we are able to get in, whether it's from sponsors or from Patreon. Patreon support, then that means the more that we can give to her and then the more cool stuff we can hopefully do. So 2022, in my mind, is going to be hopefully, this is the year, Troy, of Owls at Dawn, maybe. Yeah, fully operational battle station is the parliament now. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So we also just want to say thank you so much for those of you that have been with, I mean, fuck, we've been around for five years, homie. It's been five years, I think. Are you serious? I think so, dude. What year is this? 2022? Bro, I've been doing... I've been doing Show Me the Meaning for four years. So, I mean, we're like almost... Bro, it might be six years. It has been because we we covered the election night in 2016. Fucking, uh, yeah. So, it, dude, we may have been around for fucking eight years. We've been around for 25 years. (laughs) This is our... (laughs) This is our 25th anniversary year. You didn't know that. Listen... I think, listen, I was in a meeting the other day and we were talking about podcast numbers and blah, 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 for the Wisecrack podcast, show me the meaning. And they were saying that if you get a certain amount of downloads, then you're like basically in the top 1% of podcasts. And I just want to say, Troy, we are in the top 1% of all podcasts based on our numbers. Can we just, can we just pause for a second and just, that's silly, right? Like, I, know, I, I mean, numbers have dip. Yeah, go ahead. I'm a Bernie guy. So calling me the 1% is making me feel... Making me feel wrong. I know. I know. Ah, shit. Okay. But anyway, thank you so much for those of you who, like, listen, I know we we haven't been as consistent over the last few months, and and, um, uh, we're back now. Things are good, um, and uh, we just want to say thank you so much. So, um, yeah, we appreciate all your support. Appreciate the love. We're going to get into it. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, a film that, you know, was tearing the interwebs apart in terms of controversy, partly because the people who made the film didn't exactly help their cause at all by being shitlords or whatever online. But we're going to be talking about Don't Look Up, which is the uh, recently released, what, satire? Is it a satire? Social commentary? Um, it's definitely trying to be a satire. By, directed by Adam McKay and starring fucking everybody, you know it, Leo, J-Law, Meryl, Jonah Hill, etc., 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 etc. So um, before we get into the main segment, just real quick, 20 seconds, what do you think about talking about this film? 
Uh, I actually just listened to uh, the show Me the Meaning on this because I wanted to get um, uh, y'all's views on it uh, before we talked about it on the podcast. So, uh, and I hadn't, I've seen the movie. I watched it several weeks ago though. So I wanted to get a bit of a, a rehash on the plot in case I had forgotten anything. Um, I have some complex thoughts about it and I'm, I'm hopeful and I wanted to talk about it with you, even though you've already talked about it on Show Me the Meaning because I wanted to work out some stuff with you. I have some concerns about about the nature of satire, like what the necessary and sufficient conditions are for for a piece of media being satirical, um, mm. and the context of the specific object of the satire here, and whether or not it is unsatirizable. Um, yes. So I have some thoughts about that um, that I wanted to run by you and see what you think about it, in addition to kind of uh, more just perfunctory um, like film criticism stuff that... Um, that we can talk about, but I don't want to bore anybody with that as an intro. No, that's yeah, okay, yeah, as an intro. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say we do want to bore people with that though in the main segment. I mean, that's kind of what we do. So oh, yeah. yeah, all we do is bore okay. people. Um, <laughs> for an hour I did want to fucking every episode. <laughs> that's right. I I do even wonder too, and we can just put, kind of put a button on this, and we can get back to it in a sec. Is it possible even to do satire in this day and age? And if so, what, like you said, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions to do it? I wonder if you can do satire in an age where it's kind of like people are so disenchanted and people are so already cynical. It's almost like everything is already satire from one perspective. So satire actually comes across as being really unscandalous. So I wonder, this is just something to kind of consider. And for y'all out there listening right now, keep this mulling over in your minds. Like, what are some good successful satires? What makes a good satire? Can we do satire? Is the, is the fucking corporate media as it is already kind of satire unintentionally? I mean, not including fucking Babylon B and the fucking whatever advocate and the onion that are, you know, satirical news sources themselves. But like, is it even possible? possible to do satirical films and things like that anymore and and how do you do it um anyway that's something to think about but we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because the first thing we got to do is we got to prime the pumps we got to start the show the way we start off every fucking show it's time for the shitty minute this is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off so troy it is your turn this week the floor is yours yeah so it's been a while since this movie came out, but since we're talking about movies in this episode, I wanted to keep it thematically consistent. And I know you have some thoughts on this, so I wanted to talk about it a bit with you, and I haven't talked about it with you in person outside the podcast. So mm. there were a lot of criticisms of the Dune movie, right? Ah. Uh, generally speaking, the the popular audience seems to really like the movie. I think it did very well in comparison to the expectations, right? given that it was an, an IP that wasn't sort of ubiquitous in the culture. And there's obviously been the, the Lynch movie and the um, Yodorowsky almost movie. And obviously uh, Dune is, a, is one of the considered one of the great American sci-fi novels, right? Um, but it certainly didn't have the sort of cachet of any of the other major sci-fi franchises that are out there. Especially when you, I mean, I imagine this was a $200 million movie, right? At least. Yeah. So I think it, it did very well, and there's no question about the at least one sequel right happening um, to finish out the story of the first book, at least. Um, yeah. That said, there were a lot of criticisms from the kind of film critical community, right? Uh, and I wanted to kind of address those at least really quickly because this is just a shitty minute, right? And I really loved the movie. I really loved it. Um, and I'm not like a Dune head. I read the first book. 
and I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's got a lot of problems. It's not the most well-written book. It's got a lot of cool ideas, though. Uh, and I tried to read past the first book and just couldn't do it. I, I, I couldn't keep up the um, the gusto to get through any more than the first book. So I'm certainly no Dunehead. I didn't go into it like expecting, oh, my God, this movie's going to change my life, right? right? And also, I have to admit, it's the first – I saw it in IMAX um, right when it came out. And – that's the first movie I've seen in like two years. <laughs> so um, <laughs> having not seen a movie in theaters for two years and then seeing Dune in IMAX, maybe I was just overwhelmed by the experience. That's probably part of it, at least, right? It's not yeah. like, the whole explanation for why I enjoyed it, but it's certainly part of it. And the movie plays very well in that atmosphere. I, I, I don't know what it would play like if you were watching it on HBO Max at home. Um, but one thing specifically, and there's a couple of things I want to address Really quick, and then I'll get down to like the main point. Um, the first thing is just one of the criticisms of the movie is that it's only half a movie. It kind of ends very abruptly. Um, mm. And obviously one explanation for that is that it's it's half of the first book. So it's it's really two yep. parts, right? And they even added in the Dune part one, I guess, in like later screenings because people were confused. Um, that's fine. Like I get if people are upset because they want more. But if you're upset because you want more, then that kind of means you liked it, right? Mm. Uh, you wouldn't be upset mm. if you didn't like the first half and you wouldn't want more. So that seems to me like, well, that's only a criticism if you already are heaping praise on it because you wanted more of it. And also, like, can we remember that the vast majority of, of like literature that's a great literature that's ever been written was written in like serialized form? Maybe not the great majority. I don't know that for sure. But lots of great literature was written in serialized form and released pieces at a time, right? So... Uh, everything from like, you know, uh, Great Expectations to Dostoevsky were written serialized and released over months and years. So that's, I mean, come on, we, we can wait. Like we can keep it in the popular consciousness until the rest of it comes out. Um, another thing, obviously, is the the white male savior thing, right? Here's a story mm. about a white guy who becomes kind of a godlike figure for an indigenous group of brown people, mm -hmm. right? That seems really sketch. I mean- if you do any reading about this, you realize the whole point of the Dune series is to undercut that exact thing. Um, so the fact that it hasn't yet been undercut because we only have half of the first book is just a feature of the of the modality of the movie, right? It's not about the content. So I would just tell people to wait on that one. The real one though that I wanted to address, and I wanted to get your opinion on this because it's more of a it's more of an abstract criticism, is that I heard a lot of people mention that the film is humorless. Right, it's dark. It's gray, kind of gray brown, given the, the the amount of like just like sand that occupies the screen and and kind of <laughs> cloudy, foggy skies. Right, there's not there's not a whole lot of um, like living foliage anywhere. Right, um, even the, the the people are kind of grayish and pale. And um, mm. is that sort of humorless? Um, pastiche it just kind of it's not very well rounded or something like that and you know there's one version of this criticism which is which is stupid and that's like the movies should be like the Marvel movies and should wink at the camera right yeah it's fucking um, that's just which is dumb. fuck that shit I, I can't watch them anymore <laughs> I watched the new Spider-Man and I got bored like I wanted to look at my phone and I never do that in movies and I know everyone loves it and so yeah you can like at me or whatever but I just can't I can't do this this shit anymore with that. Now, yeah. 
I, I don't want to throw out a straw man though, because I'm sure most people who are making the humorless criticism aren't specifically making that, although some probably are, and that's just bullshit. Um, I imagine the the good faith version of the humorless criticism is just about sort of, you know, a lot of great dramas throughout um, modern cinema, especially incorporate lots of humor in order to make well-rounded stories and well-rounded characters. I mean, humor is a part of life. In fact, humor is a, I think, a necessary constituent of tragedy. Like you don't really understand mm. tragedy and its full depth unless you can recognize some of the absurdity in it, which is what causes yep. you to, to laugh, right? Uh, and there's and there's obviously lots of tragedy happening in Dune, uh, and not a lot of pointing out of absurdity. So I want to give some credence to that criticism, and and I wonder, you know, I don't really find that to be a fault of the film, but I can certainly it would be awkward, I think, if there was if if in Dune there was like, you know, pointing out of the absurd and kind of laughing at it. Um, there's a couple of moments that 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 attempt that, like when. Um, uh, it was when Javier Bardem's character, one of the Fremen, comes in and spits, and then uh, uh, everyone, everyone's get the um, the Atreides family's getting all bent out of shape about it, and then someone has to tell them, um, "Oh no, that's actually a sign of respect in their culture." And so they, so they mm-hmm. spit. To, Oscar Isaac spits too, right? Um, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of pointing in that direction. That's like almost the only moment in the entire two and a half hours that occupies that that role, right? Uh, it kind of stands out so much as being kind of awkward because it doesn't ever really happen again. Um, so I'm wondering, like, is it a, is it a, a weakness of the film that it doesn't, doesn't have that, that comic element of tragedy? Does that make it self-serious in a way that weakens its impact? Or is there something about the nature of the tragedy happening in this film, which is as, as large scale as it gets? It's like ultimately, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but in the later, later parts of the story, like the tragedy of believing in God or something like that for salvation um, and how that's doomed to fail or something like that, like grand political and religious tragedy, right? The biggest scale you can imagine. Right. Um, it, it's not one to point out the the absurdity in that kind of tragedy. And so is that a weakness of it or is there something about that where it's a, where you can sort of get away with not – having the comic element in tragedy, or maybe you, maybe you can't even have that comic element when it's, when it's that mm. level of tragedy. I don't know. I'm not sure what to think about that. So I'm curious what you think. Um, I have zero problem with the fact that the film is quote unquote humorless. I love a dark, moody aesthetic. I mean, fucking one of my favorite films of all time. I know people who listen to show me the meaning are going to laugh at me. It's like the joke is that it's on the bingo card. Cause I always talk about it, but it's Bela Tarr's the Turin horse, which is this mm-hmm. fucking, pulverize you with misery film and then just a moment when you think that there might be something interesting that happens nothing interesting fucking happens it's just wind and this dismal life of this fucking farmer guy and his daughter and they just fucking eat potatoes and they just boil them and skin them and then it's just fucking drab and bland and it's black and white and there's like zero color there's zero pace it's slow but it's like this poetic meditative like pull you along with it and i think 
after a while you kind of start to accept its rhythms and it's a part of this genre that's called slow cinema right or this subgenre called slow cinema i mean belatar also famously did this 7 hour film called satan tango and um, i can't remember the the director's name at the moment but there's a filipino director who's also really known notable for making slow cinema stuff and like there's a point to it so i don't have a problem with that at all. Like, I think it's kind of silly that we critique a film for what people want it to be, right? Like, like there are formulas and there are things that work and there are things that we come to expect. And I, so I get that on one hand, but at the other, on the other hand, I think that we also sometimes need to just pause and accept what's presented to us rather than being like, oh, I wish it would have had more of this because that tickles my fancies more. One that just, I don't know, that just seems really kind of entitled and silly. And I just, think it also misunderstands like what an artist is doing and so there's like this hubris that everything is just supposed to be pleasing for you and I think that's just part of the culture that we live in now because uh, all social media all advertising all content is just um in this fucking washing machine of the same um so that it just is fed back to us and so that we are bit by bit being programmed to um lose our breadth of scope in what we can um what we can endure and what we can enjoy and it's becoming more and more refined and we're just getting fed back the same shit and we're all just becoming kind of um monotonized right and i just think that that's silly like i I just don't think that that's a good form of art criticism i don't think that's a good way to go into a film i think it's really going to hamper your experience and two i think it ultimately is is really socially damaging so like (laughs) Like, one, we need to just kind of pause our judgment and critique and come to it with, you could call it empathy, you could come openness, affirmation, something along those lines where you come and you embrace the product for what it is. Um, my critiques were is that I felt like is that it kind of, it didn't really have an identity, right? It wasn't that it was humorless. I felt like it was trying to do the slow cinema thing, but also trying to do the big blockbuster thing, and it felt inconsistent to me. Like, had it leaned into the fucking... Um, Tarkovsky vibes, which I got a lot of Tarkovsky vibes, which who also, like, a lot of Tarkovsky. Had it leaned even more into that, I think that, like, I think it would have been easier for me to see the consistency, but I feel like it tried to do that, but also a little bit of the Marvel stuff. So some of the action sequences and some of the comedy felt really forced, like Josh Brolin's character, like, I know everyone was kind of teasing him online anyway, but, like, that, that, like, what does he say, like, 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 they're aggressive, or they're intense, or they'll kill you, or whatever the fuck the big line is that he says, you know? Um, like, it just, it, it, it felt like they were trying, and, and this is part of the fault, not of the filmmaker, Denis Villeneuve, it's part of just the entire filmmaking system itself, where if you're going to give a big blockbuster, $200 million budget to somebody to, to do a big film... Um, it's going to have to try to be a four-quadrant film in some ways. So you got to try to tick as many boxes as you can. So they're, they're a little bit hamstrung in that sense, which I guess is really what I'm bemoaning more than anything. So when I critique the film, it's almost like I'm not even critiquing the film per se. I'm more just like, fuck, I just wish Villeneuve could have just like had the full freedom and didn't have to tick any boxes from the studio or didn't have to like recoup the investment which is then of course me being unrealistic because I know that that's not possible so then what I'm really saying is goddamn I just wish our system were a little bit more conducive to like the free expression of artists which then is more of me saying like god wouldn't that I love projects when we get that opportunity and 
and the film definitely has moments of that that like that like peek through even even in its formulas that it has to kind of abide by but i guess that's really what i'm responding to is i'm kind of like responding to those those other mechanisms that i feel like maybe constrained what the product was you know yeah i mean i, I get that but i guess my feeling is i really think it succeeded in all those levels and that's not to say Do that you? the film that the film is a perfect film there's there's some weird acting choices, some weird um, lines and line deliveries and stuff like that. Um, but I really think, and maybe I think a big part of this, and I'd be curious, because um, I know you watched it at home, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that the Tarkovsky and elements and the kind of slow cinema elements to it really play up in the theater and especially in IMAX. Because watching the film, you feel overwhelmed with the sound and with the the almost the you know the monotony of the of the color schemes and stuff makes it feel oppressive, in this really kind of sublime way, where it's like I'm being overtaken by just the eternity of sand, right? And the etern- mm-hmm. the ultimate like it looks like it's like nothing's happening, but actually this is as, as treacherous as uh, a planetary environment can get for a human being, right? Given that they, there's like no no water anywhere to the point where we have to recycle our own piss to have access to water, right? Um, right. It, it, and that's a definite theme from the book. That's part of the humorous element is that this is just the most oppressive thing ever. And Wait this a is, second. So they have to recycle their own piss. So they, they, they pee and then they pool it all together and they recycle it. And then so like after six or seven times, like because your body absorbs a lot of it, doesn't it just go away eventually? Yeah, I don't remember how exactly it works. I'm sure only a percentage of it actually gets recycled. But that's what those suits are for, man. The still suits. Um. The point of that just being that this is incredibly oppressive. This is the nature of these kinds of like feudal societies, right? That that the world is degenerated into or the universe is degenerated into um, are oppressive in this way. And we're really going to show it to the like nth degree. And that comes yeah. across, I think, really well in the film to the point where I, I felt just like I felt reading the book. And I think, I think that Villeneuve was able to capture that element really well on screen while also making it entertaining like it, i never got bored i never wondered how long it's been um and so i thought that you know with some obvious issues aside and it's not by no means a perfect film i, I really enjoyed it on all those levels and i and i'm, I'm mm. curious what the general feeling will be like when at least the the, the second movie the part two is completed and people are able to watch them um back to back and get a feel for the whole thing so yeah so yeah, I take on I take on your points, and I certainly agree with everything you say about um, the the need for people to be comforted. I certainly wasn't making any claim like that. I think that that's a, a really terrible element of a lot of popular films these days. Mm. Uh, but but I do think that that there, there's there is something about tragedy that you have to have a comic element. You have to recognize the absurd the absurdity and tragedy to really understand the tragedy. So think about yeah. the, the Coen Brothers, a serious man, right? excuse me bless you that's one of the all-time great tragedy films right films about tragedy (laughs) all-time great it's one of the greatest films probably of all time like it's like the ultimate i i can't speak enough praise about that film um it's incredibly funny right but never funny Mm -hmm. in a way that's like oh here's the here's the cookie while you're taking your pill here's the sugar to help you get the pill down about the tragedy Mm. no it's Mm. like it's, it's it's in the midst of the tragedy we have to point out the absurdity at the same time, right? To really understand the level of the tragedy, it, it would it wouldn't make sense for a serious man not to be so funny. 
right. and that's why it's such a great tragedy film. So I, I do think that, you know, and this is just really goes back to Frank Herbert's writing, right? And the way he conceptualizes the Dune universe. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be as humanistic a film um, as a serious man. But then that's, you know, it's not trying to be. It's trying to do a different thing. And, we, and I think it's okay to kind of be open to, you know, if all of our uh, depictions of, of tragedy on grand scales were like Dune, then that would be a problem, right? <laughs> mm. uh, whereas yeah. if they were all like a serious man, um, I mean, we, not, not all like they all were the same thing, but they all had that level of well-roundedness. That wouldn't be a bad thing, right? But, you know, I don't think we're, we're falling into that. We have lots of great filmmakers who who deal in tragedy, uh, in their narratives and that do it like the Coen brothers do in A Serious Man. So I'm not worried about that becoming uh, like the new way of dealing with human tragedy. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess um, if we're going to round out, I know this is this is your shitty minute, but I guess if, if I'm going to rant for a second just to kind of like, I don't know, supplement or something like that, it's that um, I, I don't love this film, but I also think that the sequel might be okay and it might be fine. And really the determining factor in this is probably that I didn't get to see it in the movie theater because of, you know, reasons. And I think that fucking we should only see movies in the movie theater. That's my rant. I think that uh, HBO Max and all the streaming services, um, I think fine, they're convenient. But I don't think it's good, ultimately. Like, I think it's okay. Like, it's fine. Like, whatever. We can consume stuff at home, and it's convenient, and you can have your pajamas on, and you can watch the thing that you didn't get to see. But I think that the whole point of making cinema is to go to the fucking theater and to be overwhelmed by sound and spectacle and to be with a crew of people who are in there with you, and you're all absorbing this content together. It's supposed to be a social thing, and I don't like the fact that we're becoming more and more fragmented and isolated as a society, and we're just getting fed this fucking stuff from our homes. And I think maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it as much, because I've seen I've only ever seen a Tarkovsky film in the theater, and I've only ever seen a Belatar film in the theater, and I have tried to watch... Actually, that's not true. I watched Turin Horse also at home as well. Um, but then I was already just so invested in trying to analyze it. But the first time I saw it, I was overwhelmed. Uh, I walked out of Melancholia the first time I saw it, and now it's one of my favorite fucking movies that I've ever seen. So... <laughs> You know, sometimes you just you're in a bad mood when you see a film, or sometimes it's this, the 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 context of when you received the film. And so, basically, what I'm saying is is let's just fucking open up movie theaters. Let's just figure out a fucking cure for this shit. Let's we just got to get that shit back. And this isn't like oh first world problems kind of thing. No, it's hey we fucking need our social artistic communities back because we're being more and more fragmented. And um, it's not just like oh I didn't get to enjoy a movie that sucks. No, this is a deeper problem here. We need to figure some shit out because we got to open this shit back up. I I I miss uh like a, a fucking community uh, absorbing an important event together. Like that's that shit matters, you know. I, 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 that's that's my shitty minute. That's what I that's what <laughs> we need to have happen. No, amen to that, dude. Go to fucking movies. It's important. Yeah, yeah, it's important. It is though. It is. I would literally. I would. I would rather see ten average to good you know it could be anywhere in there and then maybe even bad i would just rather see 10 films in a theater than like 50 films at home in a year like 
if I just didn't watch at all anything at home, but I got to see, say, like, a film a month in the theater, like, that would actually, that would be better qualitatively. For me, my enjoyment levels, I'd be able to actually, like, muse over the film rather than just, like, consume, 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 where you don't get to sit and think about it. You don't get to experience it. You don't get to, like, wade in the waters of everything that was presented to you. It's just too, we have too much fucking shit coming at us all the time, you know? And I feel like with with cinema and film, it's so sensory, it so overloads our senses that we need a little time to decompress with it. We need a little time to digest it, you know? And when you go to the cinema, it's bigger, and I think what's good is you don't get to go to the... I mean, you're not going to the cinema, and then... I mean, you can have a fucking marathon, but you don't typically sit there and binge a film in the cinema, right? Um, And if you do, you can't maintain it for a week straight, a month straight, whereas at home, you're just fucking binging all night, the TV's on, stuff's coming at you, and I just actually, I, I'm against it. I'm against it. So maybe that's why I didn't like Dune. I'm gonna blame the content. Or I'm gonna blame, I'm gonna blame the context. Yeah. That should be the, um, the tagline for getting people back in cinemas. Go to the movies. It's bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's wrap that shit up. Um, because this is the movie episode, and so we're going to talk about more movies. Um, let's uh, let's get into the main segment. Yeah, dude, will you will you tee us up for that? Yeah, sure. So as we said earlier, we're talking about the Adam McKay film Don't Look Up in the main segment today. Um, do you think we should have a recap of the movie, or should we just assume people kind of know the basic idea? I think they get the I think they know the idea. Yeah, so we know that it's about uh, a giant... I can never remember the difference between an asteroid and a comet. Do you remember which it is? An asteroid, a comet, and a meteor? Yeah, and then a meteor, a meteorite, and a meteoroid. They're all different, and I can never remember how. Um, uh, and then, yeah, I- exactly. So I'll just get the official scientific definitions for people. Um an asteroid, oh, I just Googled asteroid, by the way, and a huge kilometer-wide asteroid will pass by Earth today. That was two days ago. So, cool. It safely passes <laughs> by the Earth. Awesome. So, an asteroid is a minor planet of the inner solar system. So, these objects have been applied to any astronomical object orbiting the sun that did not resolve into a disk in a telescope and was not observed to have characteristics of an active comet, such as a tail. Okay, so comets have tails. So I think asteroids, they orbit the Earth, and they're like in the freaking, like, what is it, the Kuiper Belt and stuff like that. And let's see. A comet is a celestial object consisting of a nucleus of ice and dust, and when near the sun, a tail of gas and dust particles pointing away from the sun. So it's also a small solar body, solar system body, Yeah, it passes close to the sun, it warms and begins to release gases, a process that is called outgassing. So that's the difference between there. Maybe asteroids are further away? Is that kind of the idea? Uh, I know Um, how outgassing feels. Outgass, yes, I think we all do. (laughs) (laughs) But do you remember which it is in the movie? Either way, it's a giant rock that's headed towards Earth, right? That's the basic idea. And so I think there's there's several things. Oh, yeah, and then what's a meteor? And then what's a meteor? That's a comet. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. And then what's a meteor definition? Hold on. And then a meteor is a small body of matter from outer space that enters the Earth's atmosphere, becoming incandescent as a result of friction and appearing as a streak of light. So, 
Are we to call this a meteor? So it becomes a meteor when it enters the atmosphere? Yeah, okay. Don't look up comet or meteor is what I'm Googling. <laughs> this is incredible radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're saying comet. Yeah, they're saying comet in all of these things that I'm looking at right now. Okay, comet. We're calling it a comet. Okay, we'll call it a comet. Um, so what's the best way to get into this? So I think one thing to think about with this film, um, we'll start with the satire, right? Because that's kind of the, the most on-the-surface um, analytical element that we can get into, right? Yeah. So what is a satire, formally speaking? Like, what do you think a satire is? Do you want me to Google it? <laughs> um, no, no we're, we're talking about philosophical necessary and sufficient conditions. Google doesn't have that shit, dude. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Google's for me, just the satire. Man. Yeah, yeah. So satire is any piece of art that um, seeks to um, expose absurdities in um, social reality by um, presenting, by using tools of like hyperbole and uh, absurdism and comedy to um, show the viewer or to present to the viewer um, uh, um, um, a world that that um, that is kind of like uh, distasteful or something along those lines. But I think the big thing for me is like the use of comedic tools like hyperbole, absurdism, surrealism to um, to present the social world, but in a sort of heightened, in a real heightened way. Yeah, I think that's, that's on the right track. I think that the word I was thinking of that maybe captures some element here is um, embodiment. So satire has to... It can't just poke fun at a social reality, right? Or mock it, right? That's not sufficient for being satire. It has to yeah. embody the, the social reality itself in its form of presentation, right? And then the, the absurdity gets exposed in the form of hyper, hyperbole and everything else um, in, in that embodying of the social reality itself. That's why satire is uh, sometimes mistaken for not being satire, Sometimes someone who's not in on the joke, right? It's easy to not be in on the joke because the the social reality that you're that you're making fun of, that you're satirizing, is being embodied, and that's kind of a I wouldn't say like an unnatural way to do it, but it's a, it's, it's it's not the obvious way of mocking or criticizing something, right? It's mm. it's a it's a unique and more complicated formal structure, right? Because it has that form mm. of embodiment. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you – so a comedian can stand up and talk shit about you know, politics or something like that. That's not satire. A comedian can even do an impression of a president or of a, of a figure. That's not really satire. I think that the embodiment has to be quite realistic, right? Like it has to be quite correspondent to – the world or the situation or the figures that it's attempting to satirize. I think there has to be a close, a close ish or quite close proximity to the world. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I hadn't thought about it, but you can think about three different layers here of doing like comedic criticism, right? One is to mock, which is where you stand outside of the object of uh, analysis and you just 
speak ill of it in a whatever funny way, right? That's just mocking. Easiest, that's the easiest form of of comedic criticism, right? And then there's like yeah. it, something like the middle ground. There's like um, like you said, impressions where you're in some sense taking on um, the 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 structure of the thing you're criticizing, but in a way that it's obvious that you're not really embodying it, right? You're that's what an impression is. You're just taking, you're putting on a mask for a second, right? Whereas mm. what makes satire different is you actually embody like the beliefs, like the internal reality of the thing. Um, you're almost becoming it. You're not putting a mask on, like you're you're entering the body, hence embodiment, right? So that's why like, you know, the obvious, um, for obvious like example everyone knows is like Colbert, right? When he was on the Colbert Report. Yes. People mistook him, some people mistook him for actually being conservative because he didn't just mock conservatives and he didn't just do impressions of conservatives. He like embodied it, right? He like almost ha- took on the beliefs in a way of a conservative. And so the the speech acts that were coming from him weren't just impressions. They weren't just speech acts. They were actually like flowing from a set of beliefs that you took on as well. Right. I'm almost um, I'm almost mad. I'm almost mad right now because we just figured it out, bro. We just fucking this is the key to exactly figuring out why Don't Look Up isn't successful as a satire. Because it doesn't act <laughs> adequately, it doesn't sufficiently embody. It mocks and it does impressions. Yeah, that's what I think. And I think um. <laughs> and I think it's because it doesn't care. It doesn't care about the people and the world that it's criticizing because it just thinks that they're fundamentally dumb. And so when you do that, you have no proximity to it. So you just mock. And and that is just fucking social media shitlord flame war shit. And that is why I am I, I find it distasteful and I find it actually ultimately um, counter-revolutionary and I find it regressive and I find it infantile. And I think that it's actually harmful. I think it's actually harmful to public consciousness. And for people who like are rallying behind this film, they're they're only feeding into this lesser form of communication and understanding and human connection. And I had somebody somebody email us uh, from Wisecrack when we did the episode, and they basically were like, "Look, man, I understand that you're center right, and that's why you're critiquing this film." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "What?" I was like, "No." I'm I'm critiquing this film not because I'm critiquing anything that critiques the left because I'm like how dare you critique the left like blah 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 like I'm critiquing this film because their critique of uh liberal tech bros and their critique of um trumpite you know um voters neither of them have any sort of real close proximity in their embodiment they're just caricatures and whenever you caricature, um, you're you're automatically remaining at a distance, and you create a straw man, and it's an easy punching bag. And I know it's in the service, maybe, of a good cause, but I think that at what cost? At what cost are we willing to advocate for a good cause? Is it at the cost of losing our humanity or losing maybe a higher ethical form of social communication? To me, that's not a cost I am willing to take on. And I think that we should all refuse that, actually. And I think I think that that's extremely important to, to ponder and to meditate over. Well, yeah, that just speaks to the function of the film, right? It's the function of the film to satirize something which has an unearned level of prestige or self-importance, which is usually the purpose of satire, or if the function of the film to smugly satisfy 
liberals um, in yeah. their own superiority. In fact, creating then the opportunity for even better satire uh, of itself, like self-satire uh, or parody. Yeah. I guess parody is kind of like that in a way. Um and that's, I think, what the film kind of... I mean, I, I'm speaking ill of the film in, the, in this kind of formal level. I thought it was entertaining, and I didn't, like, want to turn it off or get mad or throw the remote at the screen or whatever, right? <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, it, same. Was, it was it was, it was, was kind of funny, and I enjoyed it, and I, I'm glad I watched it. Like, I'm not, I don't hate it. I like Adam McKay in general. I like most of his films. Um, but I, I do think that your point is right, that there's, there's something... Because the film is tackling a very important subject, and kudos to it for, for doing that, right? Um... It, it, that means that where it makes mistakes or where it has weaknesses, those are going to be amplified because it's about a very important subject. It's kind of kind of unique to the film. Not a lot of popular films have addressed this. Um, so yeah, this is not like a, a hate fest on the film at all. But I think it's it's kind of important to sort of drudge up some of these formal elements to see what's actually happening in the film and also in the reactions to the film, which are, I think, a pretty interesting social phenomenon. And yeah, I think yeah. you're right that there's something, I mean, maybe insidious is too strong a word, but there's it's, it's kind of like that. It's kind of insidious happening in the response to the film. Um, and that that's sort of evidenced by the fact that, that some people will take any criticism of it as being evidence that someone is like moving towards the right or, you know, being a troll or something as if, you know, the, um, the object lesson of the film is the film in total and there's nothing else to critique or analyze about it. Um, mm. And that it's, it, I think it's correct to think about, you know, satire as being this kind of embodiment that you do. It's like a, a really fully fleshed out form of, um, of comedic or analytical comedic criticism or whatever, as we were talking about. And that the film fails at exactly that level. It doesn't really understand conservatives. I don't think. Mm. I mean, think about Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill, right? These two characters. They're basically at, at the personality level. Um, they are jocks and cheerleaders from high school. Like, how do how do nerdy, kind of smug, thirty something year old liberals think about their high school days? Well, <laughs> I, I'm one of those, right? So, how do I think about it? Well, I think about how I I I gave all this self importance, all this importance towards people who were like popular or on the football team or whatever, right? As everyone does. Like those are the people that have like the most prestige or whatever. That's what being popular is. And I didn't do that as much as most people because like I didn't give a shit and I played metal, right? Um, but still you have, there's a kind of air about those people because they they sort of own the social space in a way, like their opinion matters or whatever. And then you think about them now and you're like, oh, that was super stupid. How naive to think that way. I bet, I bet you those, they were just idiots, right? Uh, and right now they probably own a used car dealership uh, and like have <laughs> three kids out of wedlock and have gained 50 pounds and wear too much makeup, um, you know, or whatever character you have in your head of, of what these people are doing now. And that's the, that's the trope, right? The guy who was the captain of the football team now owns a used car dealership. Um, yeah. And so that's the, the level. And, and that's, that's bad to think that way because you're not giving any interiority towards the person. Give, there's no humility yes. there. It's purely judgment from an outside perspective to make yourself feel good. It's the bad infinite in the Hegelian sense, right? Of refusing to see your own um, your own place and the dialectic here and seeing others as just being sort of objects uh, driven by it. And so that's what Jonah Hill and Meryl Streep are. They're just, they're just kind of idiots. 
Like they, they, they well, literally, to... literally, Jonah Hill said that his character was like the uh, personification of the fire festival. So he's he's even admitting that he's doing that. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is, of course, a caricature that the media presents of uh, famous figures, right? And so that now sweep aside whether or not that's actually true of some people, because it might be. I'm sure a defense of the film would be, but actually, Trump et al. are that stupid, right? Th- never mind that, though, because I'm not going to go into that. Uh, but that's right. certainly not the case for everyone who's conservative, right? And they would mm. be right, I think, to to think that that, that, that the film is smug and condescending. Um, I don't know how you could see it in either way if you were conservative. And it also... You guys talked about this a bit on the Show Me the Meeting podcast. Um, the, the the choice of um, the comet slash asteroid slash meteor, whatever, right, really <laughs> brings brings that out, right? Because it's undeniable in a way that none of our other social problems that are analogous to this are that simple, right? Yes, mm. climate change is happening in, in the same way that a comet is approaching Earth in the sense that it's a sure thing that's going to happen and it's going to kill many, many people, right? But nothing else about it is similar. <laughs> um, not that the film is necessarily only about climate change, but it's about you know social problems and how um, dysfunctional uh, our social systems are with addressing them, right? And so obviously climate change is going to come up there. And to cast the conservative reaction as just being stupid rather than as being wrong but serious, right, is, I think, a problem. Like, these are complex realities, and people on the other side who disagree with you, they have serious views. It doesn't mean that they're right, right, <laughs> at all, right? It doesn't mean that they're good at all either, right? But to even mm-hmm. to call someone immoral, in a sense, um, is to take them seriously. Because if you, if you say something is immoral, you're, in a sense, assuming that that person has the ability and the rational capacity to do wrong, which children can't do, right? When you call someone an idiot, then you're basically calling them a child. You're not even capable, really, of being like wrong or bad. You're just an mm. idiot. You're sort of removing them from the conversation. They're not even here to be recognized as a participant, right? And that's that's shitty, I think. And honestly, it it. It doesn't mean you have to admit everyone that everyone deserves a seat at the table and everyone should be allowed and we should just have open free dialogue and liberalism will always win. None of that. None of that is what I'm what I'm saying, right? Um, but to, but to, it's just a casting of um, everyone who who says don't look up as as just being a child and an idiot is. I don't know. I think it was a poor choice. Man, I really wish they had made yeah. Meryl Streep a Democrat. <laughs> that would have been so well, much better. It was so easily solved, that particular portion. I know. I mean, they did say, the filmmakers did say that she's supposed to be an amalgam between Trump and Hillary. You know, like like you get the Trumpite kind of um, uh, populism mixed with the uh, the relationship with the tech uh, the socioeconomic kind of pressures that come with being allied with the tech industry. And so th- they were trying to do that, I think. But I just think that that it just it it uh, I, I just think it kind of didn't quite work in, in those. Well, I efforts. mean, clearly, like, the don't look up thing is supposed to be a MAGA thing. Like it, that was unmistakably analogous. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the tech part, it was honestly the best part of the movie as far as the satire was concerned. Right. It, it wasn't very funny and they didn't do enough with it. But I actually thought that the only successful satire was of the the, the tech guy. 
right? Because he mm. really has this kind of interiority. Like he thinks of himself as a god who's going to save humanity because he's good at business. And then right. fails miserably and is like, okay, peace out. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's simple. It's not super like complex or anything in the form of satire, but it was yeah. actually it was actually satirical. Yeah. Um, okay. So I was thinking two things when you were talking. One is you said at the beginning of, of your of your kind of like diatribe there that this isn't a hate fest. And I wanna say there's this really strange tension that I think that we can embody. And it's the one that I think I embody with this film. I can both find it enjoyable and pleasurable and think that it's dangerous or bad. And then people are like, but wait, how, how is that possible? Because I don't think that like pleasure and um, whatnot is necessarily uh, necessarily then relates to my rational or moral assessment of something, right? And so here's the thing. There's beautiful people, there's talented people, there's good actors, there's witty dialogue, it's sharp, it catches you, there's turns, there's things that are going to entice at the level, I think, of like sensory enjoyment or pleasure. Just like social media, right? You flip through fucking Instagram, you're going to find a gajillion images that can entertain you forever. But do I think that's good? Do I think that's good that we should be enticed by that? Or do I think that's good that I necessarily got enticed by that? Not necessarily. It's a much more complex relationship. So for me, I can still say, fuck, I thought that there were elements that were quite funny. I think that Leo is actually a tremendous actor in anything he does. And so I think that obviously his performance here is great. I think that there are certain elements of the direction that I think are really interesting. There are certain scenes that I found enjoyable. But when I reflect and I think more from like a macro perspective, my issues come more with what is this film saying? How is it going to affect people? What is its purpose? Um, uh, what can we pull out of it in terms of, of the messaging that to me then takes more precedence over just the fact that I had a moment of enjoyment, right? Just like I can eat a fucking thing of chocolate cake, but because it makes my fucking insulin levels spike, is that necessarily the greatest thing? I mean, sometimes it's good. Eat that fucking chocolate cake. Sometimes it's good. Watch the fucking Marvel film. But if we're going to then like, kind of back up and pause and say, okay, what does this film do as like a social artifact or what is its value as a social artifact? That's a very different level of kind of critique or engagement. And so for me, when we start looking at it from that perspective, what this film ultimately reveals, and maybe it's ultimately a, 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 only upon reflection or maybe it hits you when you're watching it. I don't know. It depends on kind of how you were processing it. Um, what I think is revealed is that this film doesn't just espouse like, uh, oh, hey, we have this imminent threat and we need to like listen to people who are observing it and presenting us with with overwhelming data that that talks about it that's not really the messaging of the film the messaging of the film for me is more like hey just trust a certain form of rationality and we should build a world that is governed by this particular form of rationality and if you don't understand this form of rationality you are um, a caveman and you are behind and what that form of rationality is, is just trust a certain type of empirics, right? And it's not even, hey, let's listen to scientists who are presenting us with data because that's a good idea because it's important to listen to evidence. That's not even what, what it is. It's more about kind of like this dogmatic heralding of, hey, the evidence is just right there, dummies. And if you don't see the empirical evidence before you, you're a freaking subhuman. And I just want to be like, fucking Descartes, like, critiqued this hundreds of years ago. 
You can't just trust your senses and you can't just trust what's right there because all the information that we're receiving is coded, right? Like it's 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 filtered through lenses that are politicized and that are socialized and that are encultured and and so there are there are grids that that kind of like filter or that act as prisms through which any sort of engagement with an object are and here yeah we're going to get fucking Kantian and philosophical and post-Kantian now but there are these conditions that 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 stand let's say in between us and the object under consideration and so the reason that a conservative person or um, somebody who doesn't quote see that isn't just looking up the reason that they might not see the thing in the way that you see the thing is because there are other reasons there are things that are there that shape their orientation to the world that shape their disposition that are going to lead to how they interpret that data or are going to lead to how they even face that data before they can even interpret it in the first place. And then on the other side of that, if you are just fucking like hook, line, and sink or like, yeah, fucking let's just trust all scientists, then of course you're going to be like, yeah, okay, uh, they're talking about the fucking fourth vaccine booster. We got to fucking trust it. We're, we're going in wholesale. I mean, that might be like the extreme version of it, but we just got to fucking do it because the science, the science is saying it. It's fucking been peer-reviewed. We got to fucking trust it, you know? <laughs> like, so it depends on what you're predisposed to accepting, believing, trusting, how you're going to orient yourself to something that is really going to have a, a lot of bearing on how you interpret the data or how you can even interpret an event that is confronting you and if you don't understand that then you're actually just a fucking anti-humanist and you really don't like people and you can't be like no i really care because you really don't what you like (laughs) is your ideas damn you know you like you like yeah you like your ideas and you like the ideas of 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 an imagined world of fantasy that you have constructed and that you think is the good world but you don't actually care about humanity and i'm sorry but if you don't actually care about humans and if you don't actually care about trying to understand even the non-human world but from their perspective from its perspective the other then i i just think that that's just a fundamentally weak political and social position yeah i mean i i think we can we can probably I think I generally agree with you and where you're going there. I'm certainly not a scientific relativist. Um, I don't think anybody is other than like maybe Paul Feyerhubbend, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, uh, or scientific anarchist in his case or whatever. Um, But like basic social epistemology is, you know, when, when, when that phrase trust the science is said, like that's, let's, let's break that down for a second. They're not, no one's actually saying they trust the scientific method when they say that, right? Because everybody <laughs> trusts the scientific method, except for Paul Feyerhaben. Um Everybody does, right? Implicitly, whether they have good reasons to or not, that they, they just do, right? What they're saying when they say trust the science is trust the scientific institutions which happen to exist in your society right now. And yeah. that's, you can't say that, one, because it's not pithy, but also because if you said that, it would, that's contestable. Like that's definitely more contestable than trust the scientific method, right? Um, also, because- it's, also, it's it's purely ideological, right? It itself is not beholden to the scientific method. It's it's a it's a, it's a value. It's an, it involves value judgments. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It involves normative and value judgments uh, because the institutions might not be just ones, and that's an open question and it's contestable, and it ought to be, right? It doesn't mean there's no answer to it. I think, I think that there are you know, more and less just 
institutions in society, and therefore more and less uh, just and trustworthy scientific institutions in society. But figuring that out is much harder than figuring out whether you agree with the scientific method, right? Which the whole emphasis on, is it peer-reviewed? Is it peer-reviewed? Is like, no, we're just talking about the scientific method, nothing else. They don't, <laughs> it, comes, it comes from God on tablets, right? It doesn't come from institutions which exist in a social reality with all the limitations yeah. that come from that. And so we, I think we got to be honest and say that the real question is, do you trust the scientific institutions? And that's a really hard question because in one sense, I, I do think it's it's okay to point out that people who are – people who refuse to place any trust in uh, existing scientific institutions, but then instead of that, place trust in obvious charlatans, right, are making an epistemic mistake – and perhaps, given certain conditions, a moral mistake. Although I think that's definitely going to be the kind of thing you can only judge on an individual basis, not sort of as a whole whole um, swath, right, of people for that. At the same time, that's it's it's much more complicated than just saying whether you believe in the scientific method or not. It's about the institutions. Mm. And if anybody out there thinks that our political and academic and social institutions in America do not deserve a healthy dose of skepticism, then I think that that's as, that's as brainwashed as someone who watches Tucker Carlson. Maybe not as brainwashed, <laughs> but yes. it's, a, it's a kind of brainwashed um, because they absolutely do deserve lots of skepticism. Um, and if you don't have that, then I, I, I don't even know how to address that. It's hard though because people who aren't involved – in academia, I think there. Okay, so there's there's a bunch of things here, and I need maybe a little help sorting this out. Okay, so academics are oftentimes elitist, and for many 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 years there has been a critique of academics for being in like the ivory tower, right? You're elitist. You're you think you're better. You're above the people, and and you try to like like talk down to us like we're dummies, right? So uh, that critique kind of comes from everywhere, not just you know conservative and progressive, but like. You know, like it, it's a fair critique that there is a a, a lot of elitism amongst um, the the uh, academics, right? Um, then you have some people who want to like respect what people who are associated with the academy, so scientists, um, social scientists, and and like economists, and and people want to respect those findings. Um, and then you have people that are like, ah, they're just all fucking, like, fuck, fuck, it's just like, cultural Marxism has incepted its way into the fucking, uh, academy, and it's all just ideological, right? Who, they just don't trust any of that shit at all, which is, whatever. Um, maybe it's in bad faith, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but so, we're in this moment right now, where it's kind of like, there's this refound, maybe respect towards, particularly the sciences, the hard sciences, but this newfound like respect amongst more center left types that it's like actually like but not even center left types really kind of across the political spectrum that's like actually these fucking scientists they know what they're doing right and and we should listen because the science is clear and so then what i think this does also is is people in the academy are really fucking excited about this and they're like they're like yeah this is our moment right and in one sense that's good because I think a lot of times academics are like feel like they're screaming into the fucking void and a lot of stuff that they produce is really important, right? Um, so like the fringe ecologist that is looking at um, some like 
I, I don't know, uh, studies like ponds across the United States of America, like the northeast. I'm going to go even more niche. Like the, they study ponds in like the northeast of the United States, you know. Uh, that's like their specialty. Um, like that, that person now, is, their papers are being respected and their years of data that they've collected are now making an impact and how we understand the impacts of agricultural farming runoff and, um, you know, like the invasion of predatory species that don't belong there, but they've been moved out of their other areas because of uh, other effects of, 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 of pollution or of, uh, of, climate, of climate temperatures um, being out of whack or whatever, you know? So like those resources are now getting the respect that they need and so what you get then is you get a lot of like academics who are like fuck yeah like this is our moment right so these are these are kind of like a bunch of things that i'm kind of just thinking about okay so then you get a film like this that comes out and everyone's like trust science trust science trust science and all the scientists are standing up and they're like fuck yeah and and part of me is like okay that's cool that's good that that like that that trust science or or respect science is having a moment but it's also like they're LARPing and they look at Leo and they look at J-Law and they're like, yeah, like, like we, we we're living our, our ideal fantasy through these people as being like um, the, the not philosopher kings, but the scientist kings and queens of, of the world, you know? And so it's kind of a little bit like um, a, a fantasy role playing that they get to live vicariously through these these massive images that they see on screen, and they're like, "Fuck yeah!" And so I wonder if scientists are are gravitating to this film so much because that's really what they're getting. They're getting this like enjoyment of seeing like their wish fulfillment fantasies played out on screen, where they're like, "Fuck yeah, everybody trusts me!" And then if you don't trust me. Look what happens, which is like the mom that's like punishing you, right? Or the dad that's like punishing you. I and told so you so, what, yeah. Yeah, you know, and and so there's a little bit of that going on. And then I also just want to kind of like then break the veil a little bit here. And I want to just say like academics, I think most of them have an authentic desire to pursue the passions. I'm, I'm giving like a lot of benefit of the doubt here. A lot of, I'm going to say the majority of them, whether it's 51% or whether it's 99%, I don't know. It's probably somewhere in between there. Um, the majority of them, I think, really do have passions for pursuing what they're pursuing. But you also have to remember that a lot of academics, um, they're feeling financial pressures from investors to study certain things. Um, they're looking in certain areas because they're caught habitually in that. So a lot of what they're doing is a little bit outdated, you know, um, because it's behind the times. Um, a lot of them, like I mentioned this on the podcast, you know, they're just like you cite your friends and they cite their friends and you work in your little cohorts and you just cite each other and, and that's fine, but you're still remaining in a silo, right? There's not a lot of interdisciplinarity, um, even though I think in in a lot of the sciences they do a pretty good job of trying to to look, but they don't incorporate a lot of other things outside of the sense they they don't challenge their philosophical presuppositions, for example, and they don't look a lot into anthropology and sociology, and they don't really look at like uh, the economic factors that are one impinging on their research or two that kind of like result from the consequences of the things that they're publishing. So there isn't a lot of what I would call true interdisciplinarity um, in a lot of these fields, and then. Um, as much as people might feign towards that, it's not prevalent, right? Like, it's there, but it's not prevalent, right? And so I think what, what really I'm ultimately trying to get at here is we also just need to recognize that that we need to have a little bit of, like, a killing of the god here of the academics, right? Like, we can't just... 
one, we don't want to accept the elitism from academics. That's silly. But we also don't want to, like, look up to them as though somehow they have their finger on, on like, the, uh, the, the conditions of objective reality that, um, that, like, elevate them to this godlike status. And I, I, I've been in academia. I'm still in academia. Troy, you're in academia. Um, obviously, we're in different fields than, than, than the hard sciences. But, like... I know a lot of these people, you read a book from them and you're like, my God, that person's a genius. And then you meet them and they're like, well, they kind of suck though as a human, you know? <laughs> or you, you read this book that took them 10 years to make and then you meet them and they have zero other fresh ideas, right? Which is okay, which is okay. But my point in saying this isn't to like, like shit on academics. My point is that they're human and they're fallible and they're not gods. And, and when we elevate them to this level of like, just trust science and that this is like the form of rationality, I feel like we're just kind of like worshiping them. And I just, anytime I hear like hints of worship or like dogmatic praise or dogmatic ideology, I automatically am like allergic to it. And that's like, that's one of the other big things that, that I think is surrounding this film and its ideas that I just find really dangerous. You know, yeah. I mean, I think maybe we can step back and and do the same or have the same kind of epistemic humility that we're asking libs to have for conservatives in the other direction, right? And say maybe you know, it's simultaneously true that the use of the scientific method to understand physical reality is it's both like the, the one of the greatest accomplishments of humankind in history and the best way of understanding physical reality that we have by far. And also extremely suspect and weak because uh-huh. we are extremely suspect and weak, right? And our institutions and our social realities are extremely suspect and weak. It's both of those things. Um, no one's saying like, we should go back to woo. Like I'm going to fucking take the medication that my doctor prescribes me, right? Without really questioning it um, very much because I just don't have the re- relevant expertise. And that's in no way like, like, hypocrisy and given what we're talking about here at the same time we can also say i think like why why does this reaching for um the empirical gods the gods of the empirics to tell us from on high what's the case like is that really just trying to recreate the um, the gods of, of of the ancient world in the form of human beings and the institutions that they occupy Part of it, I think, there's some of that, right? The the human need for an external authority to tell them what's true. At the same time, that's not entirely bad, I don't think. I think it's suspect and we should be skeptical because it's a dangerous realm to be in, like you know, broad stroke gestures at all of human history, right? At the same time, like not everybody can understand everything. Like we need a division of epistemic labor in society. <laughs> and we have to have individuals who are experts on certain things and we largely yeah. don't question them. It has to be that way to some degree. Now we, we want it to be to certain degrees and not to others. We don't want it to the furthest degree, right? Where the, the experts have absolutely no checks on them, right? Uh, and it's good to, to gain as much knowledge as you can um, about scientific issues so you can be an informed um, person when you're uh, in any way relating to it. But there's, you know, so again, social epistemology, like we have to have these relations of where we trust certain institutions and individuals that occupy them. The question is, if there's good reason not to trust those institutions, then you have a huge fucking problem, right? Mm. Because though you need those for society to function. Society does not function if there's, you know, not just skepticism, but cynicism 
about the governing institutions in that society. And we have that right now. That's what we're seeing at the breakdown of trust between individuals and um, whether or not they consider their institutions or society to be legitimate or not. Largely, they don't. That's what's breaking down on both sides, but especially it seems like on the side of the conservatives. Um, mm. And so that's a huge fucking problem. And you can't resolve it by beating someone up about it or yelling at them or scolding them. Right. Because that's not how you gain trust. Right. Even if they're they're the lack of trust is is at least partially, if not largely mistaken and then placed into a worse object instead. That's totally possible and in fact true in a lot of cases, right? That doesn't resolve the issue at all. It's a, it's a social problem, not a problem of individuals uh, or, or simply or merely of individuals making epistemic and moral mistakes. No, it's like it's a, so, it's a social problem, a social disease, evidenced by the fact that it's clearly a systemic uh, effect. Systemic effects have systemic causes, right? That's the basic principle. And so if you see a large, very fast breakdown in trust in civic institutions, then you can guess that there's a systemic problem underlying that, not just a bunch of individuals being stupid. And mm. that's just the kind of thing that's not really being addressed in a film like this, right? It's seeing it mostly right. as the same way that idiocracy, right? Human, these some humans are just naturally stupid. Not me, the person who's presenting this narrative, because I'm clearly smart enough to stand outside of it and abstractly criticize it, right? But the other ones, they're stupid and you can't do nothing about stupid. Yeah. Um, so it's a way also of sort of uh, removing any responsibility for solving the problem or engaging with other people mm. because you can't solve stupid. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know, I think, I think, I think one of the other kind of concerns that's related to this is that um, that that remember when Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing his campaign for like a planet that was called like Rationalia and they had like fucking yeah. t-shirts. This was this was your shitty minute like fucking two years ago or whatever it was. It's a shitty minute um, of my whole life. Yeah, that's fucking yeah. And I feel like that that's really the messaging behind this is it's like um, scientists don't necessarily think that they should be dogmatic rulers right i mean maybe a couple do but like fucking maybe richard dawkins does but um (laughs) for the most part they don't think that but what they do think is that science with a capital s whatever that means as a community as an institution as a practice that it has its own um control mechanisms and its own corrective mechanisms built in right peer review being one of the mechanisms that kind of it's like a checks and balance right and so because of that it thinks that it is kind of a a sufficient um a a kind of sufficient way to view the world a way to govern the world and not of course all scientists think this and of course not everybody in the scientific community and that all scientific approaches but the scientistic ideology definitely operates from this, right? And I think to me that's really just filled with a lot of hubris and arrogance. And um, to me that's more of an ideological position rather than itself even being a scientific one. And I think that's, that's kind of what I respond to because to me that then is when it becomes dogmatic, you know? That's when oh, yeah, it, is, it is – yeah, go ahead. It's epistemic supremacy. That's what we mean by yeah. dogmatic, right? It's saying here yeah. is the only way to know things. 
And then that's you, right. You and you are stupid. That's right. And unless you, and then it kind of holds a gun to your head and it says, unless you accept us, you are stupid. You are other, you are subhuman. You aren't enough. And I don't know that form of, of communication to me is, is despicable. Right. I just don't think that that's ever the way to um, communicate with somebody. I, I, and, and I just don't think that's how you build a world or build worlds. You know, it, it's also just philosophically naive and weak. Right. Yeah. Because as we mentioned before, you know, whether or not to blow up a comet that's approaching the Earth is a, there's not a lot of value judgments involved in that. There's some, but they're, they're pretty universal and unambiguous. Right. But and, not, and, and the, the corollary there would be like, are the vaccines effective? Like that's that's pretty much a, a scientific question. That's it. So people who doubt that are making a huge epistemic mistake, maybe even a moral mistake, depending upon what's actually going on in their heads, right? But the questions of like, what do we do about the pandemic? Like what what should we do lockdowns or not, right? The questions of what do we do about future generations with regard to climate change? How do we distribute um, benefits and burdens? How do we, what do we owe to future generations that exist after us? All those questions are not merely scientific questions. Science informs those questions, of course. It has to be a seat at the table, right? But it doesn't answer those questions by itself. Those are value questions. All those mm-hmm. questions are value questions. And so you have to bring in something other than, you know, the hard sciences to try and answer those things. And that's a real, that means really hard political and social realities coming to the fore. And those are obviously very contestable and uncomfortable. You can't just rely upon an expert to tell you what to do there. In fact, it's unjust to rely upon an expert to just tell you what to do. Those have to be collectively decided. And that's the kind of thing which you can't do when there's a complete breakdown of trust between individuals and the larger society, right? You can't have any sort of good faith effort to have that kind of collective dialogue and decision-making that's necessary um, to actually answer those kinds of questions. So we're stuck at an impasse there. And I think a lot of people on the kind of scientific side, the good faith interpretation here is, look, look, they might even admit to a lot of that stuff, but they're like, we, we, well, we can't solve that. Cause that's like generations long political mistakes that have been made. Right. So what do we do? Just, just like trust the scientists, right? Just whatever the institutions we have, just trust them. It's better than the alternative, right? We need something. So just take what we have, right? Uh, and yeah. I get that. Like, if that's where they're at, I, I, it's it's a sad reality, but I understand why someone would take that position. I would just say, yeah, I mean, maybe in, in some sense, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of at that place when it comes to a lot of stuff regarding the pandemic and stuff. Like, yeah, we have shitty institutions, but they're better than <laughs> they're better than some of the alternatives that are on offer from the other side. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take them and do my you know exercise my healthy skepticism. But that's that's pretty much. It as far as it goes, um, and then I don't know, man. I think you're you're right about the the being a shitty way of viewing the world. We we gotta hope, have something better, right? Clearly, mm. what we have is not sufficient for legitimate form of a, a set of social institutions, right, and political institutions. We need better because shit's gonna get a lot worse than just like fucking COVID. Obviously, with climate change. And if we have the same set of social problems with that that we have with with COVID, like I don't even want to think about about how it's going to go. That's that's frightening to think about. So we we got to hope mm. for something better. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people talked about how how the comet wasn't a very good 
um, metaphor or analogy for climate change. And, and I'm just trying to think, like, like, what would be a more intricate way to not even satirize, but let's say just deal with the issue of climate change, for example, like that you can't deal with when it's like a comet is coming at the earth. I'm thinking of like a punch coming at your face. You fucking dodge or it hits you and you get knocked out, right? Like it's kind of like a single, very linear cause-effect relation, right? A punch coming at your face is kind of like a comet coming at the earth, right? It's just a fucking, it's coming and you duck out of the way. So, well, the earth can't duck out of the way, but maybe we can deflect the comet, we can deflect the punch. The difference is, is like, if a punch is coming at your face, you then have a choice to stab the person or choke the person out or run away or get your friends to follow that person and mercilessly torture them for the rest of their lives or like there's like options after that, right? And I feel like that's kind of what we need to think about here. It's not just about like should we deflect it or not. Like sure, deflect it or not. The issue is about like what about these larger possibilities of what we can do? So like they kind of explore that with the comet as another option. It's like, oh, well, we can either deflect it and then we kind of just like solve the whole problem. We can break it apart, you know, so that it doesn't, so that it breaks up into small, tiny little pieces and then it doesn't have, you know, the cataclysmic effects. Or we can like mine it for resources. Um, and if we do that, then we'll be able to actually like benefit humankind or more appropriately, it'll benefit the economic system and billionaires are going to just get more billionaire right? Billionaires become trillionaires, right? It's like, or um, what if we had the political will and the um, the resources in place to begin with, and they were quote peer reviewed um, already in place in the first place, so that when a comet comes, we could mine the resources, and then we say that hey, guess what? Um, it's a social wealth fund, and because this is an intergalactic object, every single human on the planet has uh, an equal share in the resources that come from it. You <laughs> it's know, an alleg- um, allegory for Norway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, and it's like so. Then that's then that's 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 one way of of uh, of dealing with it. Which to me, then okay, now let's talk about COVID. It's kind of like okay, well maybe we could have invested prior, knowing that models have been run and gain of function research has been performed, and we have fucking films and video games that are literally based on a coronavirus outbreak right? Like, so it's not like we didn't know that these type of viruses existed and that this would be possible. The real problem was that we had poor infrastructure investment and we had a lack of political will to deal with this in a way that would be most conducive to like social flourishing, right? And so that's why we've been kind of caught up in the fucking bullshit stalemate with states warring against each each other and countries warring against each other and like confusion about what the science is and what's good and misinformation. I mean, you know, it's because we haven't had those pieces in place in the first place, right? So actually, mining for the resources of the comet wouldn't have been a bad idea if we had the appropriate resources to do so and we had like, you know, a uh, high degree of success probabilities and models run at the outset, then that actually probably wouldn't have been a horrible idea. The reason it was a horrible idea is because of the imminent nature of it, right? The punch was coming. It was either time to fucking duck or you had to, and that wasn't, that wasn't going to be a viable response, right? So that's the other issue is what's the viable response and how do you determine a viable response? Well, now let's talk about the whole issue of climate breakdown. Is the viable response, um, changing personal consumption habits, which is what a lot of, um, the kind of like neoliberal branding campaigns have focused on, you know, recycle, don't use plastic, take shorter showers, um, you know, buy organic food, eat local, uh, vote for the local greens parties, like things like that that are like, yeah, okay, those things are important. Those things are good. But, um, 
you know, if we shift away from fossil fuels, what about like the radical disparity in wealth between Northern Hemisphere countries and Southern Hemisphere countries? Northern Hemisphere countries have benefited vastly from their abilities to access fossil fuels, which have helped, you know, build up certain technological industries. Are we now saying, well, guess what? Southern Hemisphere countries, you don't get access to that. Well, you know, some people look at that and they're like, well, there needs to be like different different requirements for different countries, you know, like the, the highest polluters who are, um, or maybe like the advanced nations, they need to taper off quicker, whereas like the developing nations, um, they can taper off a little slower. And it's like, okay, well then that's one thing. And then it's like, okay, but then what do we do? Do we do green investment? And is green investment a good thing? Because, you know, the billionaires are going to get richer. And then it's like, well, but yeah, but that's what the film was satirizing with the whole bash thing. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't really present any sort of alternative at that point. And it's like, okay, so if it's not green infrastructure spending, like, like, what do we do? The, the point is that there's it's just this mishmash of things that we need to look at and to consider and the film doesn't allow really for much of that kind of nuanced thinking to consider it just simply bludgeons you with you're an idiot if you don't or you're an idiot if you just think that you can like get rich off of this right and i just think that both of those are highly problematic because um it just shows a real lack of political imagination and artistic imagination and again like we've said throughout it's just kind of like ideological dogmatic uh, ideologically dogmatic and so i don't know it just I just feel like there's so much more stuff. And I just don't know, and this goes back to your opening question, is this even a topic that we can satirize, right? Like, is this, like, can we do this type of satire? And is climate change, is the COVID situation, is this stuff that we can even satirize? And that I leave to you to, to discuss now. Yeah, I mean, we should probably move on here, but I guess one last thing to say is, you know, one, one thing or one reason possibly for thinking it's not satirizable there's two reasons I can think of. One would be um, the level of interiority that you'd have to embody to engage in effective satire doesn't exist in these particular persons. And that's one we've been critiquing, I think, a lot in this whole period. And that's just, that's just shitty. Like, mm. I guarantee you, even, I mean, I guess I didn't want to go down this road, but like Trump at all, they're not stupid. They might be bad, right? But they're not stupid. And if they are stupid... What does that say about libs who lost to them, right? Mm, um, mm. And, and also, who controls the vast majority of political institutions in America? Yeah, and then and local the easy especially. answer is just to be like, but they've manipulated people and they're using power. That's why. Yeah, so they, they won stupid. unfairly. Yeah, they won unfairly. <laughs> Russia, Russia cheated and da da da. They won unfairly. That's the only thing you can retreat to, which is grow the fuck up, you child. My so that, God. Yeah, that, that I'm just going to wave away, right? The other maybe um, more plausible reason for thinking it's unsatirizable is something you talked about earlier, which is what if what if we're so irony poisoned in yeah. the contemporary media escape that satire becomes impossible? And I think that that's, that's probably wrong, um, although it's it's plausible. It may, maybe the, the middle position would be that it's more difficult to satirize in a more irony poisoned environment. And that's why a somewhat ham-fisted form of it that's really more mocking than it is satire is going to be – it's more obvious that it's a failure for that reason. And the way that like the great dictator wasn't in this context. And so even if it has some like mocking type characteristics, it's still effective satire, right? Because uh, it isn't in the irony-poisoned environment. Um, so maybe that's it. And it just means if you're going to do satire, you've got to be better at it. You have to understand the nature of the social reality better. The, the level of interiority happening in the object that you're satirizing, you have to understand that better and embody it more effectively. 
to do satire. And that's where I think that's I think that's true because that's for me clearly where the film doesn't go right in trying to be satire. It doesn't really effectively embody the mindset that it's satirizing, right? It has a very kind of superficial and naive view of it. And that's just that's just not really all that effective as satire, even if it's, you know, basically right on some of the more, you know, obvious and empirical points. Yeah, I'm gonna say I think we are irony poisoned, and I do think it's damn near impossible to do satire in a comedic hyperbolic sense because how can you get more hyperbolic and i'm gonna say even satirical than a youtube video that is like jordan peterson destroys a dumb rad lib and it's like a video (laughs) where he just makes like a calm remark like that's already satire that is satire because if the idea is is that it's supposed to be embodying a world in close proximity like This world isn't an objective world necessarily either. It is already like a fantastic construction, right? So I think that contemporary social media and even like like the mainstream media is already satire because it's trying to approximate. It is trying to get close to this fantasy, this image of the quote real world, but it's, and it's embodying it and it's very close in proximity, but it's, it's, it's fucking hyperbolic and it's sensationalist and it's already using kind of like the tools of sat- I think I think media is already satirical like everyday media m- the majority of it is already satirical and so I think it's very difficult damn near impossible I think that maybe if you're going to do satire it has to be like this authentic earnest satire and maybe it just won't be as funny right because it won't be as like bombastic Right, so maybe that's how you do satire now. It's got to be like this, like authentic, sincere, and earnest uh, embodiment of of the thing, and it just might not be as like over the top and sensationalist. Because how how can you be more sensationalist than every fucking video destroys a person, or everyone just got you know blasted, or so and so got dragged, or oh my god, most intense thing you'll ever see. Like fuck, man, is it? I just don't know if we have the capacity for more of it. Like, you can't get bigger than it. So maybe you actually have to be, like, more muted in order to really be successful in doing satire now. Yeah, maybe. And that's got, got me thinking about some of the, the weird comedians like uh, Tim and Eric or John Wilson yep. or Joe Para or others who have kind of a an unfunny aesthetic that ends up being funny. And it's not really satire. Some, in some cases, it is. Um but maybe that's why those kind of uh, comedians have been successful recently, because is they're able to have this muted. Yeah, maybe. I mean, is Atlanta even maybe. a comedy? It's tough. It's so it's it's surreal. It's almost too good to be labeled as anything. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, yeah. though, I do I do want to say that there, I think there's still room for for satire. It's probably it's definitely harder to accomplish, right? But if what you need to do to be effective satire is take a certain a certain level of interiority that has not been publicly manifest and then publicly manifest it and embody it, right? That's kind of the key, right? You can't satire something everybody knows, everybody admits to. It has to be the kind of thing that whatever whatever object you're satirizing doesn't admit to the, its own interiority. And then you embody it for itself, like to show it, uh, to expose it. Uh, that certainly exists. And that's really why, I mean, like Veep, um, I only watched the yeah. first couple of seasons and that was a while ago. So we, were, we live in a different social reality now than then. Mm. But it was effective satire because it, it, it did skewer 
um, liberal politicians in a way that that was pretty effective. And in fact, that it was kind of a running joke that um, politicians on the Hill hated Veep, but they loved um, the Kevin Spacey show on Netflix. What was that called? Oh, House of Cards. Yeah, they loved House of Cards because House of Cards made them out to be, even though they were, the, you know, he was evil, and it cast politicians as being evil. They were like magnanimously evil, right? Yeah. So there was something to be proud it of. It was there. seductive. Yeah, it was seductive. Yeah. Whereas Veep made them out to be kind of childish, right? And not yeah. only in a mocking way, but in a sense of like an exposing um, the nature of political reality to be dehumanizing in this kind of way. Um, and so that was the effect of uh, form of satire. So uh, again, I don't think you could do Veep again right now and it would work the same way. Maybe it would, I don't know. Um, but I think you probably still can do effective satire with the traditional forms, hyperbolic and not muted. Although I, I do see your point that probably the reason why the most some of the most successful avant-garde or vanguard comics today had this muted tone is because, or in response mm. to, the just absolute up to the 11 <laughs> A level of hyperbole that's in everything yeah 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 all right i say we go ahead and wrap up the main segment there what do you think brother yeah yeah so next we got to do the final segment that we always do on our podcast the uplifting and life-affirming segments of the podcast yeah and that's the sticky leaves so for those who don't know sticky leaves is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's granting us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe, although we're not really sure. So Austin, what's doing it for you lately? So I think usually people think of the sticky leaves as being like the recommendation part, right? And oftentimes we do. We talk about something that's giving us meaning and we recommend a book or a film or some music or, you know, some sort of play or an outing or a type of activity that's giving us meaning, right? And I guess this is kind of a recommendation, but I'm just going to simply gush about something that is kind of like my momentarily my momentary obsession and that is camper vans i am obsessed (laughs) (laughs) i am obsessed (laughs) yeah i am obsessed with camper vans particularly the ones that are like pop-up tents so um for those of you out there i don't know if you're campers or not they have these uh from varieties of scale like real quick troy you're at a computer just go to um opus opus camper vans australia right now okay and it's 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 something that you would tow behind your car so it's got like you know you'd have to have a hitch and a tow and it's like a box like a rectangle that you tow it's an actual tent (laughs) yeah and then it pops up and it's like a tent and it um it it some of them are really simple you know and it's basically just like you know a place for a bed and to sit down in a fridge or something like that and some of them are really advanced some of them have fucking showers in them some of them uh, have like full kitchens inside some of them are really cool and they just do like outside ones anyway i am freaking obsessed with these things and i want one so bad and I want to just fucking have like weekend trips with my fucking camper van that pull behind my car. <laughs> and I literally, I spend like all my time now when I'm like, I, I'm like looking online for like random shit. I'm like looking at these cool videos or, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at these cool products or I'm watching like cool videos on YouTube of people who are using them. My favorite one 
is this Opus One. Um, they've got what are called the hybrid camper vans, which are basically like really nice, like full scale shower, like hard top, like like they're that they're big, they're they're massive, they're like sixty thousand dollars, right? Like those are like big ones. Oh they're cool. God. Showers inside, full kitchen, TV, like fucking air conditioning, like that's a good one. And then they have like the smaller ones, which are still kind of expensive. They're like twenty thousand dollars, right? But you can finance them for like a hundred bucks a week or something like that in Australia. And I'm sure there are different prices elsewhere. I'm, I know you can get used ones too for you know like better prices than that. These are like brand new, like off the fucking. And this is with all the bells and whistles, right? Um, but the one that I like, it like sets up in literally like five minutes and it has it it like i saw the guy push the i watched a live video of it the guy just pushes this button and like air like fills up so it doesn't have any like poles or anything like that it's all like this air technology and it just like blows air into these um columns that hold it up and keep it all sturdy and shit and then you have like your sturdy pop-up tent it's fuck and and that one has actually a lot of bells and whistles in it because you know that one's still like twenty thousand dollars so um, I, but that's like my favorite thing. I think it's so cool. I love it. You get like a fridge in it. You can have a little grill where you can cook, a little sink, you know, big storage container for water. Um, like I said, the little showers in there, little toilets in there. Oh, I'm obsessed. I love it. I love it so much. Um, one of these days, I'm just going to do a fucking like road trip either across America or across Australia or fucking van life shit but I, I want to do it in one of these camper vans I just I think they're the greatest thing in the world so I'm obsessed wait so how did this love affair start did you use one that someone else had or something I've always been a big fan of road trips right I've always wanted to do a road trip across America which to me meant that I would have to have something more than just like a car and you don't stay in a hotel I mean you could sleep in your car but you got to have like some kind of like a van or you got to have like a trailer that you can sleep in or 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 like the expensive one is you get an RV or something like that you know um so I've always had that like as a dream in in my mind but I just recently went on this road trip where my partner and I we drove 20 Two twenty-three hours north to go stay with her parents over the holidays, and uh, they live in central Queensland, and we're down in Sydney, so it's like a 22-hour drive, and we did it over the course of four days, and we took our time, and, and it was really lovely um, on the way up. The way back, we got stuck in some floodwaters, and it took us uh, almost twice the time getting back, but... Um, but uh, on the way up, like, I just saw all these cars passing by, and I, and I saw a couple of these, like, little pop-up tent things and I was like what is that babe and she looked at it and she's like oh my god it's like a pop-up tent thing and I was like that is so fucking cool I was like (laughs) that because it kind of like and and it was affordable right like I was looking at some you know they're like under ten thousand dollars which you're still like ten thousand dollars that's a lot of money yeah it's a lot of money but like if you consider compared to like van life or RVs and stuff like that you're like god at least it's it's kind of you can get you can do it but you can do it a bit more affordably right and so I'm like I'm like, shoot, I don't know. Like maybe that's maybe that's one of the one of the things I can save for. And and if you can finance them for like a hundred bucks a week, then I'm like, oh shit, like, you know, that's not too bad. So I'm like <laughs> I'm like, damn, if I go get one now. I'm like, babe, what kinda can you can we get a tow hitch on, on your car, you know? <laughs> so, um yeah. So that's that's kind of what triggered the fascination with this particular form. But I've always been obsessed with like vans and and RVs and and long roads. I love I love road trips. So, yeah, I've known you for a long time, and I've known that you love road trips and stuff like that. But I did not know of your affection for camper vans. So that's a new thing that I've learned about you today. And it's kind of adorable, I have to say. 
I mean, I think it was kind of always one of those things that I never thought was like, like, like my reality, you know, like I kind of was like, oh, that would be so cool. And I think I, I always thought that maybe you, I would like rent like a van or something like that and do a cross country trip or, or that maybe you just like load up the car and you stay in motels or something. But I think that if you're going to do it, this is the way to do it. And I think, yeah, I think, um, I think, I think I could do it. I think I could pull it off. I think I could, I could live that way for a, a substantial period of time. You know, I mean, I think you could live anyway. <laughs> that's not yeah, saying maybe. much but you would want to is the thing like you would want to try it out yeah like it's in the top five of ways of austin could live <laughs> this would be in the top five for sure <laughs> yeah that's saying a lot yeah also living on a boat that would be in the top five too i would love that really so, yeah i could totally do that like just like like live port to port to port and just like sail around i could totally totally 100 percent without even a hesitation that's in like that might even be ahead of camper van. I, wow, I can't, I can't picture that. I just, I would not want anything to do with scurvy, man. Uh, well, you know, you just gotta eat that, eat an orange every day, and you won't get it. Yeah, you ain't, you ain't eating an orange every day if you're living on this <laughs> waters, man. Uh, but so no, yeah, number so one on the like, list is like the Heide, is like the Heidegger lifestyle, right? Like out in the yeah, and that's in the woods. That's also yeah, the Walden. Yeah, that's that's also in the top five. So these are three yeah. of those are three of my top five. All right, come back next week for the other two of Austin's top five <laughs> ways of being. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, if, if I'm going to turn this into a recommendation, I just want to say to people, if you look at the van life videos on YouTube or on Insta and you're like, man, I fucking I could I, I would like to do that. Or if you like camping and you're like, oh, man, I, I would like to do that for extended. Just look into some of these pop up tents because they have all kinds of they have some that are way more affordable than even the ones I was like am like enamored with right now. And you can buy them used secondhand, whatever. Um, but check some of them out. They're really freaking cool. They are really cool, and they seem super convenient, and the technology now makes it so that, like, the setup doesn't take that long and doesn't require too much, so it all seems pretty cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I like road trips, too, and I I didn't know that they had camper vans that were, like, basically tents that you could just, like, take off of the back, I guess. That's pretty cool. Bro, bro, it's so cool. Yeah, literally, uh, (laughs) so you're on that Opus website right now. Don't look not the not the hybrid camper vans because that's like the expensive ones. The one just above that, I can't remember what the the category is. Um, but look at that one, and then they've got videos on there where you can see them set it up. Literally, you just push this button, and then air fills up in the columns, and it just like <sighs> kind of like one of those um, pop up, you know, bouncy castles. It's like that. It it's the air opus. Like that. Is that it? Which one is it? The air opus. Mm, I don't think so. What are the other ones that you're looking at? It's just like Air Opus and then Hybrid Caravans is the other one. Oh, then maybe it is Air Opus. And then does, is it like a drop down? Yeah, the Air Opus 2, the Air Opus 4, and the Air Opus Lite. Oh, yeah. Try the, yeah, we just look at any one of them. The Air Opus 4, for example, is, is like the big one. Air Opus 3 is pretty cool. Um, and then you can do like a virtual tour on their website where it shows you like everything when it's all pulled out and set up. And there's videos oh, yeah. on there that I'm show doing you. It now. It's cool. There's a barbecue unsafe. in here. Bro, that seems are you on the virtual tour? Are you on the virtual tour? <laughs> yeah. So sick, right? <laughs> this is legit, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I would saying. live in there. Fuck yeah, dude. And if it takes five minutes to set up, then that's easy. This is the Kush van life, man. That's what, it's glamping. It is glamping for sure. <laughs> All right, brother. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there, yeah? Yeah. 
666. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Um, as we said at the top, you know, head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn if you can support us and if you want access to some bonus content. As I said, we've got a new producer for 2022, so the show's going to be more consistent and we're going to have more time because we have somebody kind of helping us out, so we're going to be able to be giving you some more things, some goodies and things like that. Um, in terms of like bonus episodes and whatever else we can provide, hopefully be a little bit more active on the Discord as well. Um, and that's pretty much it, man. I think I think we've covered pretty much everything, unless there's anything that I've left out. Uh, just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidani, Americanski. Yeah.